Greetings, and welcome to Ed Times Weekly Podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Happy Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah, as you know, is the Feast of Trumpets, Yom Terah, where we look forward to the return of Messiah, which will be heralded by the Shofar Blast. It's also known as Yom Hadin, the Day of Judgment, uh, when the books are opened and the Lord judges our deeds. And so Rosh Hashanah begins what's known as the Yamin Yorim, the Ten Days of Awe, where we're called to examine ourselves uh, and repent and, and turn to Yeshua. Uh, and, and, we, and pray that Yeshua Messiah to him that our names be written in his book of life on Rosh Hashanah. So I want to talk today about sin addiction, uh, but with a positive encouragement of how we can break bondages and overcome these sin addictions. And to get at this theme, I want us to look today at the prophet Yomiyahu, the prophet Jeremiah. So turn me to Jeremiah chapter 2. We're going to be reading a good portion of Jeremiah 2 on, on the overhead. The word of the Lord came to me, Jeremiah says, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Yerushalayim, this is what the Lord says. I remember the devotion of your youth. How as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness, through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who devoured her were held guilty, and disaster overtook them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, house of Jacob, and all you clans, house of Israel. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your ancestors find in me? that they strayed so far from me. They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. They did not ask, Where is the Lord who brought us up from the house of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness to a land of deserts and ravines, a land of drought and utter darkness, a land where no one travels, no one lives? I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce. But you came and defiled my land and made my inheritance detestable. The, the Kohanim, the priests, didn't ask, where is the Lord? Those who deal with the Torah didn't know me. The leaders rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal, by Baal, following worthless idols. How can you say I'm not defiled? I've not run after Baals, the Baals. See how you behave in the valley. Consider what you've done. You're like a swift she-camel, running here and there. A wild donkey, accustomed to the desert, sniffing the wind in her craving. In her heat, who can restrain her? Any males that pursue her need not tire themselves. At mating time, they'll find her. Don't run until your feet are bare and your throat is dry. But you say, it's no use. I love foreign gods. I must go after them. As a thief is disgraced when he's caught... So the house of Israel is disgraced. They, their kings, their officials, their priests, and their prophets. They say to a wood, you're my father. And a stone, you gave me birth. They turn their backs to me, and not their faces. Yet, when they're in trouble, and they come and say, they say, come, save us. Where then are the gods you made for yourself? Let them come, if they can save you when you're in trouble. For you, Judah, have as many gods as you have towns. Why do you bring charges against me? You've all rebelled against me, declares the Lord. 
In vain I punished your people. They didn't respond to correction. Your sword has devoured your prophets like a ravenous lion. You are this generation. Consider the word of the Lord. Have I been a desert to Israel or a land of great darkness? Why do my people say, we're free to roam? Uh, We we, uh, will come to you, Lord, no more. Does a young woman forget her jewelry or bride her wedding ornaments? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number, says the Lord. Now, one of the reasons we have trouble talking about sin uh, and evil, despite all of our our misdeeds and transgressions and guilt, is, is because our modern secular society rejects the concept of sin and finds it meaningless, finds it a throwback to the Dark Ages. And yet, despite our culture trying to suppress and censor the concept of guilt and sin, we nonetheless sense there's something deep within us that is not right. And so on this high holy day of Rosh Hashanah, we want to look honestly at our human condition, as described here in blunt detail uh, by the Jewish prophet Jeremiah, and see how the Lord provides a way for us to overcome our sin addictions and have our names inscribed in the book of life. And by looking at the book of Jeremiah, we put this in overhead, uh, we're going to see what the essence of sin is. But the essence of sin is replacing God. And as a result of, 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 uh, is the addiction of, the, of our spirit to various idols, to non-gods. Jeremiah here, he's prophesying to Israel, and he's rebuking them for rejecting the Lord, for going after other gods, which interestingly he likens to spiritual adultery. And we're going to see three themes in this passage we'll put up. Uh, We're going to see the dynamics of spiritual attraction, the dynamics of of spiritual addiction, and finally the dynamics of spiritual restoration. So first of all, this passage shows us the dynamics of spiritual attraction. And you're going to note how Jeremiah uses pretty graphic, sensual imagery here. In this passage, God is calling our people Israel to task for turning to idols. They're worshiping other gods. They're not worshiping him. And in the first three verses of Jeremiah chapter 2, the Lord uses remarkable sexual imagery, likening Israel to a young bride hopelessly in love. But Israel has gone astray. As we see in Jeremiah 2, verse 20, the Lord says this to her, For on every high hill and under every green tree, you've laid down as a harlot. Now, on the high hills, under the spreading trees, people would erect altars to the Canaanite gods of Baal and Asherah. Why? Because hills were a sign of transcendence uh, into the heavenly realm, and trees were a sign of fertility. So we read in Jeremiah 2, verse 20, And on every high hill, and under every spreading tree, and you think the next thing he would be said was, You worship idols. But that's not what the text says. This is what it says, Jeremiah 2.20, On every high hill, under every spreading tree, you spread your legs. Now, I know your English versions probably don't say that, but that's the literal Hebrew. The Lord's saying here that when you make anything into an idol, when you in essence worship or serve other gods, you're spreading your legs, you're playing the harlot, you're committing spiritual adultery. Now, why does the Lord use this graphic imagery? Because this is what he's saying. All throughout the Bible, when God talks about worshiping him, 
He uses sexual imagery. And when he talks about us worshiping anything else, he likewise uses sexual imagery. Why? I'll put this on the overhead. God is saying that there's an attraction going on at the spiritual level in your heart right now, every bit as powerful as the sexual attraction is on the physical level. Right now, God's saying there's something going on in your soul, in the deepest recesses of your soul. You're laying down with something spiritually. You're putting yourself in the arms of something spiritually. And your spiritual relationship with that thing, whatever it is, put it on the overhead here, could be money, or career, or family, or fame, uh, or beauty, achievement, popularity, power, romance. It's just as powerful as your physical relationship is with your spouse or your lover. Now think for a moment about physical attraction. It can be pretty overwhelming, right? Indeed, the most embarrassing moments for most people uh, are when a physical attraction overwhelms your, your common sense. But what makes physical attraction so strong? Many different theories out there. Note how Jeremiah likens us to an animal. Look at Jeremiah 2, verse 23. See how you behaved in the valley. You're like a swift she-camel, running here and there. A, a wild donkey, accustomed to deserts, sniffing the wind in her cravings, in her time of heat. Biologists say that our physical desires are so strong because we have an innate biological drive to reproduce ourselves, to continue the human race, to prevent it from, from becoming extinct. Uh, and the male gender and the female gender by themselves are incomplete uh, and dead, collectively speaking, unless we get together to reproduce and, and maintain the human race. And biologists say this is what accounts for the, the powerful sex drive. So biologists say it's just purely a physical thing. There's nothing, because there's nothing emotional about animals. Animals don't send each other Valentine's Day cards. <laughs> it's a purely physical attraction, they claim. Because biologically speaking, we're incomplete. Collectively, we need each other. Uh, so why did this powerful sexual imagery here in Jeremiah? Here's why. The text is not talking about Israel's sexual practices. It's not talking about sexual ethics. It's talking about religion. And in our minds, of course, religion and sex are two totally different, even opposite things. But Jeremiah combines this imagery to get our attention. And here's what he's saying. There is deep in your soul a, 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 a spiritual desire even more powerful than your sexual desire. And it's this. You can't produce your own meaning in life. You cannot by yourself create your own worth. Uh, you can't produce your own security. Everyone has to have some meaning in life or, or your life is empty. Everyone's got to have some affirmation of your worth or, or you feel worthless. Everyone's got to have some security uh, or you can't face life. But you can't produce it in yourself any more than you can by yourself reproduce your own species or your own life. So, put this on the overhead. You can't reproduce yourself spiritually on your own any more than you can reproduce yourself physically, you know, all by yourself. You can't say, all that matters to me uh, is that I like me. You're never going to get your worth that way. You can't say, I'm just going to live my own happiness You'll never get meaning in life that way. There's got to be something else besides you that's the source of your meaning uh, and worth and security. And, and you have a drive for that 
You have a need for that. You need to, to take hold of whatever it is, something or somebody outside yourself, some person, some pursuit, some goal, some relationship, some practice, something, because you're as powerless to reproduce uh, or, to, or to produce meaning in your own heart and worth and security on your own as you are physically unable by yourself uh, to reproduce your own life. And so spiritually speaking, if it's not God who's the lover of your soul, if it's not God in whose arms you are spiritually, if it's not God who's the ultimate source of meaning in your life, whose affirmation is the source of your self-worth, and whose power is the source of your security, if it's not God, then you're in bed with something else spiritually. Something you, you've given yourself to. Indeed, something you've given yourself to in realms so deep and so profound that God here is saying that you're every bit as spiritually beholden to it as you are physically beholden to a spouse. Every bit as spiritually laid out and spread out and as vulnerable to it spiritually as you are physically intimate with someone. The Hebrew scriptures use very graphic language. You do the same thing spiritually as you do in bed with someone physically. Spiritually, you think this is something you have to have. You're spiritually incomplete. Uh, uh, and, and are you looking to this thing, this, this God substitute uh, for completion? And if you are, therefore, you're spiritually in bed with it. And know how radically different this, this biblical view of the soul and the spirit is from all other religions and all other philosophies. So, so go to Barnes & Noble, go to, go to any bookstore, you find a ton of books on things like Care for the Soul, Help for the Soul, Chicken Soup for the Soul, <laughs> or for the Spirit, Care for the Spirit. Uh, uh, and the interesting thing is that all these books basically say the same thing. Uh, that they depict the soul as like um, a pond, as a sort of still lake. But the Bible depicts the soul as a restless, turbulent ocean. And when all these books talk about care for the soul, care for the soul, they talk about getting into quiet places and thinking inspirational thoughts, reflecting, being quiet. They say, you see, the soul is that kind of thing. But the Bible says the soul is much more robust, much more vital, uh, much more alive. Your soul uh, is like two empty, outstretched arms. Your soul uh, is an empty heart. And you must run after these things. You have to try to fill that, that empty, gnawing void. I can't help it, says the soul. I must run after them. Do you see, the Bible reveals a completely different approach to your soul. Your soul doesn't just need to, to be petted there, there. No, your soul needs love. Your soul needs rapture. Your soul needs passion. But the Bible not only gives us a completely different view of the soul, but also a completely different view of God. Now, most of these books on the soul, they don't even mention God. But if they do talk about God, the God they describe is somebody remote, uh, a power, uh, someone to give you uh, an inner sense of peace, uh, an impersonal life force. On the, on the overhead, please. But the God of the Bible, the real God, says, I am not just a remote force. I'm not even just a sovereign that you must obey. Let me tell you what I created you for. I want to be the lover of your soul. I want to be the center of your heart. 
I want to be your bridegroom, God. Look at the rapture of physical love. That's just a dim hint, the Lord says, of the joy and the ecstasy that your soul is created for in relationship with me. That's what I made you for. That's what I want you to be. You know, modern New Age spirituality is nothing. It is empty compared to what the God of the Bible, the Holy One of Israel, is offering you. The biblical view of the soul on the overhead, please. The biblical view of God. It's amazing and transcendent and vibrant and relational and personal and intimate. The Lord says to you, I want you in my arms. So, we see the power on the overhead, the power and the dynamics of spiritual attraction. And the Lord says this, if you're not in my arms, if I'm not in your arms, then you're in the arms of something else. Some God substitute. Some other lover. Some idol. Now, the second thing overhead we learn here is the power and the, and the dynamics of spiritual addiction. Because what God is saying is, if you, if you don't have me in your arms, if you're in the arms of anything else, you're in deep trouble. You have a life and death problem. You're in an addiction cycle. So the first part of the cycle on the overhead, the first part of the cycle is promote something, some ideal. Look at Jeremiah 2.27. They say to a tree, you're my father. And to a stone, you gave me birth. If you're not worshiping the Lord, if he's not the center of your life, if he's not the focus of your heart, if he's not your greatest joy, you don't have the kind of intimacy with him that you should have, then you're turning to other gods. Now, when you think of idolatry and, and false gods, you, you normally think of various sins. Uh, but here in Jeremiah uh, chapter 2, is there anything inherently sinful in and of itself about, about wood and stone? No. Uh, these false gods, these idols, aren't necessarily sins in and of themselves. But they may lead you to sin. But they're not sin by themselves. Often they're good things. Or they're created things, like, like wood and stone. Which, however, if you overly value and overly promote them out, out, out to the top of your life, then that's trouble. That, that when, then you can say to them, you say to them, you made me, you define me, you're my father. When you look at, at someone and say, without you, baby, what good am I? <laughs> if you're saying to something, perhaps something even very good, you're my father, you're my savior, you're my maker. And that's the first step. The first step is you take something good, a relationship, a career, and you promote it to an unhealthy, uh, inappropriate power and priority in your life. In essence, you're saying to it, you define me. You are my goal in life. You are my Lord and my Savior. And that's the first step. And the overhead, secondly, that then leads to addiction. Uh, because you can't be restrained or self-controlled. Look at Jeremiah 2.25. Don't run until your feet are bare or your throat is dry, says the Lord. Your feet are bare means you're running so much that your shoes have worn through. And your throat is dry is a picture of you running through a desert, dying of thirst. And of course, it's foolish to be running in the midst of a desert. But that's uh, what this narrative is depicting. Look at the rest of the verse, Jeremiah 2.25. But you say, it's no use. I love foreign gods. I must go after them. Now, this word must is everything. 
overhead, please. If God is at the center of your life, something else is. It could be work and career, uh, or, or money and possessions, or achievement, or fame and popularity, or beauty, or athleticism and sports, or music, or, or art, or family, or romance, or social or political cause, or your own self-determination and individualism and independence. An independent spirit is your God. Or religion. Lots of people make a God, make an idol out of religion. And we messianics, because we so much appreciate our Jewish heritage, we need to be very careful not to make Judaism into an idol. Anything, even good things, indeed especially good things, can become an idol. And in the end, all these things become ultimately fig leaves. And only the Lord, only Yeshua the Messiah, ultimately matters. Everything else is dung compared to Him. So when you say to any of these other things, you define me, you're my meaning in life, without you I'm nothing, only with you do I have worth, I have to have you, only with you does my life have meaning, then that's an idol. And you're addicted to it. And the best way to tell whether or not you're addicted to something is not when things are going well, but when things are going poorly, when you're in trouble. Look at Jeremiah 2, verse 27. The Lord says to Israel, Israel's turned their backs to me and not their faces. Yet, when they're in trouble, they say, come save us. Worry that are the gods you made for yourselves. Let them come if they can and save you. Now, let's say you have a close friend you speak to each other a lot, and let's say you both went through a, 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 a career disappointment. And your friend is okay with it, but, but you're devastated. And then you also both went through a, a romance or a relationship disappointment. And your friend this time was devastated, but you were okay. Uh, so what's going on here? You are in bed with success. You're spiritually sleeping with it. And that's why when you have a work or a career disappointment, you can't take it. Whereas your friend... He might be in bed spiritually uh, with romance. See, your friend is devastated when he or she has a setback there. We're all in bed with something. But you can't usually tell unless and until it's taken away. So here's four people at a restaurant, all drinking a glass of wine. One of these four is an alcoholic. How do you know which one? How do you find out which one is addicted to alcohol? Not when they're all having a glass of wine. That's not the way you tell. But when you take it away from them. Take it away, and so you can't have any alcohol. You see, it's, it's your reaction to the absence of the addictive substance that really tells whether or not you're addicted. On the overhead here, for most of us, the only way we come to know what our idols are, the only way we come to know if we're addicted to other gods, those other lovers to whom we have a fatal attraction, to other things uh, we feel like we've got to have is when something goes wrong and we risk losing them or, or when they're taken away. So here in Jeremiah 2.27, the Lord says to backsliding Israel, where then are the gods you've made for yourself? Let them come and save you if they can when you're in trouble. And then, of course, these idols, these false gods, they can't save them. So, for example, let's say you husbands here you build your life all around your wife. Uh, and she builds her life around you. One of you, someday, is going to see the other one in a coffin. So even the best 
marriages eventually end. And, and the same is true for anything else we make into a god and an, into an idol. One day they will all fail you. And here's what, here's what the Lord is saying through Jeremiah. Where then will be the gods you've made for yourselves? How then will they save you? If you build your life, even on a great thing like your spouse, uh, if you're on, how can he or she possibly save you in your moments of greatest need? They can't. Or if you build your life on religion, and your view that you are a moral, decent person, and therefore your, your precious moral standards and religiosity, and sense that I'm a good person, that will give you meaning in, in life and, and worth in life. Now what happens when you fall? What happens when you lapse? What happens when you blow it? How can the God of moral integrity save you when you've just blown it? Your guilt will come crashing down on you, and then where will your gods be? It's when you're in trouble, when your heart is breaking, that's when you come to realize the things I built my life on cannot possibly save me. That's the addiction cycle. So we see, number one, the dynamics of spiritual attraction, and number two, the dynamics of spiritual addiction, and now finally, the dynamics of spiritual restoration. There's a remarkable program here of restoration in Jeremiah 2. And the pattern is this. Uh, as we said, there are God's substitutes, there are idols we're attracted to in our sin. After giving into the attraction, we then get addicted to them. But they never satisfy. And they always fail us, and they abandon us in our time of greatest need. They cannot ultimately satisfy us because they cannot fill the God-shaped vacuum in your soul. Only Messiah can. And these other gods that are worth, they're worthless. And in the end, we too feel worthless. So look at Jeremiah 2, verse 5. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your ancestors find in me? But they strayed so far from me. They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. So how can we avoid these fatal attractions? How can we cease being in bed with other gods, other lovers? And even if you consider yourself a strong messianic Yeshua follower, nonetheless, all your problems ultimately come from this. Whether you are a messianic believer today or not, this is the map of your life with respect to other lover gods. And whenever you feel an inordinate amount of anger or fear or an inordinate amount of guilt or, or even boredom, you can get to the bottom by asking two questions. I'm in the overhead. Number one, what do I feel like I just have to have or I'm dead? You know, no meaning, no worth. What is it that I feel I absolutely have to have? And number two, what is functioning right now is my real Savior more than Yeshua? These two questions will reveal the map of your life, your real lover gods, the idols in your life, your fatal attractions. Now, how are you going to deal with them? In this text, we're told three things how you can overcome these fatal attractions if you want freedom. And here's how. Number one, personalize your understanding of sin. Look at Jeremiah 2, verse 2. Uh, this is what the Lord says. I remember the devotion of your youth. How as a bride you loved me and followed me to the wilderness, to a land not stone. Israel was holy to me, the first fruits of his harvest. All who devoured her were held guilty, and disaster overtook them, declares the Lord. Now, if you understand sin as breaking the law of God, if that's your basic understanding of sin, 
you're going to become a scold. You're going to scold yourself when you sin. And you're going to scold others when they sin. You're breaking the law. And here's the problem with scolding. Anyone who's scolded uh, about doing X often now wants to do X more than ever. <laughs> even yourself. You scold your heart, and your heart wants to do it even more. And some of you, that's all you've ever done. You've got, you've got these things you want to overcome. You've got these things you want to change. And all you've ever done is, is you're scolding your heart. You're breaking God's law. Well, we've got to renew our understanding of sin. This text is telling us, let me put this on the overhead, sin isn't just breaking God's law. It's breaking God's heart. Look a bit deeper at this. Some of you have been through what counselors say is the ultimate psychological trauma. The most stressful thing you can ever go through in your life, a divorce. Some of you have been through that. Especially when the person you've given yourself to, you've made yourself vulnerable to, rejects you. Turns from you. Maybe even puts himself or herself uh, into the arms of someone else. This is perhaps the worst kind of emotional and psychological suffering. But this text is telling us that's exactly how God feels when we turn away from single-minded devotion to Him and put other things first in our life. This is how God feels when we sin against Him. And until you realize this kind of betrayal and breaking of covenant is how God feels about sin, you will not understand sin. Look at the language Jeremiah is using here. It's like honeymoon language. Uh, Jeremiah 2, uh, verse 2 and 3, God's depicting his relationship with us uh, as two lovebirds together. In verse 2, he depicts us as a young bride uh, who, who, who didn't care that her patrol had no money, uh, that they would live in some hole in the wall in the wilderness. Uh, it didn't matter to her because she's in love. And then in verse 3, the Lord is depicting the young man who's going to deck anyone who looks even cross-eyed at his bride. And as you look at the description of these two lovebirds, it's clear that nothing else matters except their love for one another. Now, why would God use that illustration? Because that's what his heart is like. The Bible tells us, even though God is utterly holy and utterly majestic, and in his being he doesn't need you, nonetheless, we're told he has voluntarily made himself vulnerable to us. The Lord cares for you. Indeed, he's bound up his heart with you. He's given his heart to you. Indeed, he's laid down his life for you on the cross, on the tree, on the execution stake, the tree of death that becomes a tree of life. And when we live for something else more than God, we're doing exactly to him, only far worse, what an unfaithful husband or wife does when they walk out on their spouse. When you sin, you're not just breaking God's law. You're breaking his heart. You're stabbing him in the heart. Whenever you don't put him in the center of your life. Because he's put you in the center of his life. And he paid the ultimate price for your salvation. So when you sin, you're committing cosmic treason against him. Do you understand sin like this? For some of you, the reason you've never been able to change is because all you do is scold your heart. But see what God has done for you in Yeshua. And how Yeshua wants to betroth you to himself. In this, 
will melt your heart. You need to see how God has given his heart to you in Messiah Yeshua. And since he's infinitely more powerful than you are, and infinitely more loving than you are, and infinitely more wise than you are, this must mean also that he suffers intimately much worse than you do as well. I know people, so do you, who've been rejected. People who've made themselves utterly vulnerable, put themselves into the arms of somebody else who've been rejected and cheated on and betrayed uh, and used shamefully. And it's totally devastating. I've never had that happen to me, thank God, but I have been betrayed by people. So I have a glimpse of how devastating it is. And yet due to our rejection of him, God says, I'm going through something infinitely greater than that. God's saying, I'm going through something infinitely greater than the worst experience of that. So perhaps you can get a glimpse of how God sees us. He cares for you. He loves you. But until, number one, on the overhead, number one, you personalize your view of sin like this and see it the way God sees it, your heart will not be melted. And then number two, second thing, remember grace. Look at Jeremiah 2, verse 5. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your fathers find in me that they strayed so far from me? Uh, And then verse 6. They didn't ask, where's the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt? Led us to a barren wilderness, to a land of deserts and ravines, a land of drought and darkness, a land where no one travels and no one lives? The reason our people Israel fell into idolatry is because they had spiritually forgotten their salvation. They were constantly saying, let us remember the Lord for what he's done for us. So the second way to get rid of the fatal attraction to idols is you've got to make spiritually real in your life what God has done for you in the Messiah, Yeshua. And you've got to remind yourself of that daily. Now, there's a place in my all-time favorite book, uh, Lord of the Rings, where, where Pippin, the, the hobbit, he's standing at the gate of a city, and the city's being attacked by this evil witch king, the demon king, this evil orc king, who smashes through the gates to the sea, is about to destroy the whole place. And all of a sudden, off in the distance, there are horns. The horns of, of the riders of Rohan. When they come to, rest, come to the rescue, and even though the king of Rohan, he rides to his death that day, the city is saved. And for the rest of his life, Pippin could never hear a horn off in the distance without bursting into tears. Why? Because every time he heard a horn in the distance, it reawakened the memory of his salvation. And the memory of the one who died for him. What are your distant horns? To remind you of your salvation. Of the one who died for you. It could be reading his word. And studying his Bible. Praise and worship. And fellowship with other Yeshua followers. Hearing testimonies. Giving your testimony. Sharing your faith. Prayer. Celebrating the biblical feast days. You're prone to get into the arms of other gods when you stop saying, this is the Holy One of Israel, the Lord Yeshua, the Messiah, who died for me. You took by my sins and gave me His righteousness and saved me and loved me and delivered me and did this and this and this for me. You've got to keep reminding yourself daily, constantly of His grace towards you. You need to find ways to continually make it spiritually real and new and fresh for you.
You cannot be passive about your relationship with Yeshua any more than you can be passive about your relationship with your spouse and still expect a spark of excitement uh, and romance uh, to be there. Israel strayed from the Lord because they ceased to seek Him and to remember Him daily. His goodness to them, His acts of deliverance on their behalf, to overcome spiritual attraction to other gods, and to be spiritually revived, number one, from the overhead. Uh, number one, personalize your understanding of sin, how sin breaks God's heart. Number two, remember and daily recite what Yeshua has done for you through His grace and mercy. And then finally, lastly, number three, look in the mirror. Jeremiah 2.32 Does a maiden forget her jewelry or bright her wedding ornaments? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. Now, you brides, what's the function of a wedding dress? On your wedding day, you want to look perfect, right? But the fact of the matter is, you're not. <laughs> On your wedding day, you don't want to be just the right size, but uh, you want to be just the right size, but, but you're not. <laughs> On your wedding day, you want to be flawless, uh, but you're not flawless. But there's something about wedding ornaments and wedding dresses and wedding makeup that there's never been an ugly or an imperfect bride. And that's one reason why ornaments and dresses and makeup are so important. Now, in all my years of doing many, many weddings, I've never seen a bride walk down the aisle and say, Oh my God, I forgot my makeup. <laughs> and you know why? Because the bride is always looking in the mirror. I mean, all day she's looking in the mirror. <laughs> Can you imagine a bride getting to the top of the aisle without her makeup? I can't. <laughs> or forgetting to look in the mirror. Oh, I don't have my veil on. I don't have this or that on. It doesn't happen. Now, God says... Just as you use your ornaments to hide and to cover over your blemishes and to make yourself physically perfect looking, I'm going to give you something that will make you spiritually perfect and spiritually beautiful. Jeremiah 2.32 Does the maiden forget her jewelry or bride her wedding ornaments? Yet my people Israel have forgotten me days without number. Here's what the Lord's saying. Here's my promise. I can make you perfect and spiritually beautiful. The reason you're out there working so hard, the reason you're, you're always so upset, the reason you want your own children to be perfect, the reason you want someone to love you uh, who, who is perfect, the reason you work so hard on your career, all these reasons is because you are trying to cover yourself. They're ornaments. They're fig leaves. You're trying to make yourselves spiritually beautiful and spiritually acceptable. And God goes as far as to say, I'm not just going to give you something uh, uh, external to make you spiritually acceptable. I myself am that for you. I can be that for you. Now, Jeremiah probably didn't understand all the later revelation that, that we know today. That is, Yeshua, uh, he came and he died and he rose again to forgive you your sins. Uh, and in addition, if that wasn't enough... He also comes, he says this in Ephesians 5. He says, I'm mean, coming to present us to himself as a radiant bride without stain or wrinkle or spot or any blemish, but holy and blameless. He came to be perfect and, and, and was perfect and to make us perfect in him if we repent for Rosh Hashanah and we trust in him. Yeshua lived the perfect, spotless, sinless life that you could not live. He died the death that you deserve to die. And he paid the price that you could not pay. 
and he defeated the enemy of sin and death that you could not defeat. Yeshua lived a perfect life. He loved the Lord with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength and his neighbor as himself perfectly. He never sinned. He's the only one who's ever lived a perfect life. And so he qualifies to be our sin offering, our perfect substitute, taking on our sin and dying for, for us on, on our behalf. And the good news, this was the is that now you turn away from your sin and you turn away from yourself and you turn to Yeshua in faith and in trust. You turn to Him. He takes on your sin. And He puts His perfect record, His righteousness on you. We turn to our false gods because we're trying to convince ourselves we're beautiful. But when Yeshua, when we trust in Yeshua, He puts His beauty on us. We're clothed in His robes of righteousness. Yeshua says this on this Rosh Hashanah, this high holy day, if you're willing to look in the mirror and see what I've done for you, you understand how beautiful you can be if you're clothed in my glory and my holiness, if you repent and submit to me as your Messiah and Savior and Lord and King, you can be free from all your, your addictions and your fatal attractions and your idols and your false lover gods forever. And then truly be my radiant bride without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Amen. Hallelujah. Let's stand and pray. Let the music team to come up, please. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you for this holy Rosh Hashanah day. As you blow the shofar, remind us to awaken spiritually from our slumber and to return back to you. We confess we've gone our own way. We've put many other things, other, other goals, other people, other priorities ahead of you. We've gone after other gods, false gods. We have committed spiritual adultery. We have these spiritual attractions, these fatal attractions that have now become spiritual addictions. We confess those attractions and addictions. We confess them and we ask you now, the Lord, to break every chain of bondage. Everything that buys for first place in our life and tries to replace you and having the rightful throne of our hearts. On this high holy day, we come before you, Lord Yeshua, our Messiah. And we turn from having ourselves on the throne of our life. And we ask you to take up that throne and to rule and to reign over our life as our king. Help us that every time we put ourselves and our wants and our desires and our priorities and our appetites and our ambitions first instead of yielding to you, having you supremely, that we are not only to help us to see we're not only breaking your law, we're breaking your heart. You, Yeshua, lay down your life for us. You put us in the center of your life. Help us likewise to lay down our life for you, King Messiah, our bridegroom God, and to put you, Yeshua, in the center of our life, Lord. Break every chain now in our life. We pray this in your holy name, Yeshua. Amen. Hatsumeah. Yeah.